Support for this podcast has been provided by Alliance Bernstein Investment Management and Research, making money meaningful. In the 1930s, he visited uh, a friend in Hedera, and he saw a long fence of trees, and one of them, he noticed, was exceptionally bigger than the others, and I'm, I'm quoting him. So he went to check to see the reason. And he saw that a metal pipe that was carrying water to the house had a crack in it, and it was leaking. It was dripping slowly, drop by drop, next to that tree. This is Startup Stories from the Startup Nation. My name is Yigal Marcus. Thank you for joining us. In this podcast, We'll meet the entrepreneurs who have personified the economic miracle known as the startup nation, the state of Israel. We'll learn about the culture which helped incubate them and their ideas. We'll learn of their successes and of course their failures. And we'll explore why it is that Israel develops some of the leading innovators of our time. Water scarcity is a global crisis that the United Nations predicts could displace up to 700 million people worldwide by 2030. Today, over 2 billion people live in countries that experience high water stress, and a third of the largest groundwater systems are already in distress. Now, part of the problem certainly is the lack of rain, but a very big part of the problem is the fact that we don't use water efficiently and we waste a lot of it. Farmers in particular waste a lot of water when irrigating their fields. As you'll hear, in the late 1930s, an Israeli named Simcha Blas accidentally discovered something called drip irrigation, a method by which farmers can irrigate their fields much more efficiently, thereby saving water and vastly increasing their output. Since its early days, Even before its formal establishment in 1948, the state of Israel hosted hundreds of kibbutzim. A kibbutz is a communal settlement in Israel that personified the early days of the state as they welcomed a massive influx of new immigrants both before and after the Holocaust and had to build a better future. On a kibbutz, its members can work together to build and to thrive. In 1965, members of an Israeli kibbutz called Kibbutz Chatserim, located in the arid Negev desert, decided to build a company around drip irrigation and solve the problem facing many countries worldwide. They started a company called Nitafim. Today, Nitafim is a global leader in drip irrigation with over 30% of the market share. It has over 4,000 employees and conducts business in over 110 countries. This is the story of how it all began. We're here today with Nati Barak, who is the chief sustainability officer of uh, one of Israel's foremost companies, uh, Netafim. Nati, thank you very much for joining us. I I know you're a very busy person. It's hard getting on your schedule, so I'm very happy that you were able to spend a little bit of time with us today. It's and my pleasure. Welcome to the program. So let's let's start a little bit uh, about you. 
Uh, you've been with the company for a very, very long time, and I'd love to hear how you got to the company, a little bit about your background, and then we'll jump into Netafim itself. I grew up in Haifa, in the city, to a middle, upper-class family. And like many people uh, in Israel at that time, at that age, I was highly motivated by ideals, ideology. I'm not ashamed to say I was a socialist. I wanted to change the world. And uh, we knew about the kibbutz movement. And, and we spoke to people from the kibbutz. And uh, we decided, me and a group of friends, to form what we call in Hebrew garin, or a seed, and to join a young kibbutz in the Israeli Negev desert. So graduating from high school, I had to join the military, of course, like every Israeli young person. And uh, after the military, I went with my group to Kibbutz Chatzerim at the Negev Desert. What year is that? I got there in 64. The Kibbutz was already established, and, and we, as you know, we were 20 years old. We looked at the founders as something between old and ancient. I mean, they were 38 years old. So we felt that, that, that that's it. I mean, for them, it's the end of the story almost. <laughs> and, and we were young guys and we came to the kibbutz. And again, my idea, for me, it was clear that I'm going to be a farmer. I'm going to be a farmer in the desert and I'm going to try to turn the desert green in the traditional way of growing uh, cotton and uh, potatoes and sugar beets and carrots and peppers and so on. And, and I have to confess that I was much more interested in the tractors and the machinery than in the crops and the agronomy. Again, my dream as a young person was to drive a tractor in the endless uh, desert plains. Now, you had a choice about which kibbutz to join. Uh, we didn't, because we were part of, of, of a youth movement, uh, the Israeli Boy and Girl Scouts, and the seed, the Garin, was part of that movement. So they assigned us to Kibbutz Hatzerim. And we didn't like it at the beginning because it was already established. When we got there, we saw the challenges and, and we realized that uh, there, there's still a lot of work and many challenges. And, and, and for my part, you know, in the farming, we didn't have enough water. The soil was very, very poor. poor and we were not very successful in our uh, agricultural work. It must be very frustrating becoming a farmer in the desert. Yes and no. Again, you know, I, I still today, I love it. I love the fact that, you know, that you look to the horizon and at that time there were not too many trees blocking the view and so on. 
So, so I really, I, I, I learned, I, I missed Haifa a lot with the Mediterranean and the bay and the water and so on, mountains. But I learned to love the, the Negev, the desert. And, and for me, it became home very, very fast. So this is 1964. Yep. And this is after you, you did your army service. Yep. And uh, you became a, a w- what did you do in the army? Well, I was in the, it's a special unit, but I, uh, it's called Nachal, Noar Chalutzi Lochem, which means fighting, pioneering youth. So the idea was to combine the military training and settling in a kibbutz and, and working the land and so on. And, and by the way, the, the symbol, the emblem of the unit was a sickle and a sword. Magal v'cherev. And, and, and this was uh, a, a very, you know, I'm, I'm getting very nostalgic talking about it because we were naive, we believed in, in so many good things. So, and I ended up in the paratroopers because part of, of the training was parachuting and I was, I, I uh, in Israel, most of the military is based on reserves and I served as uh, on, on reserve in the paratroopers until I was 54. Wow. And, 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 and I, today they, they release you much earlier. They, yes. After a certain age, I, I volunteered, but it was a mutual agreement. I mean, uh, you know, people, again, in the military, when they become 32, they say, nah, I'm too old to run on the hills and so on. And the brigade commander at that time, who was a very good friend of mine, said, Nati, I need you because I want to show you as an example when these young people at the age of 32 say we are too old, I want to tell them, look at Nati, he's 50 years old and he's still here. But I wasn't running on the hills at the age of 50. Ah, so you were a scapegoat. They, they, you were the... <laughs> uh, yeah, but uh, don't pity me. I, I really enjoyed it. You know, the... the Being in the military in Israel has one very bad aspect, which is fighting the wars. Other than that, the comradery, the melting pot of people coming from all kinds of diasporas, the, 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 the scouting. The, I mean, some people pay to go to places like this and, you know, run in the field and drive jeeps and so on. So I, don't pity me. I, I enjoyed it. I did it again as an, my obligation to the country, but I felt very good with it. I, I didn't feel for a minute that I am sacrificing anything. Now, 1964, um, you, you come down to the kibbutz. Just a couple of years later, uh, we had a war. The Six Day War, 1967. You were called up for that, I imagine. So, of course, in 67, I, I fought the war. And uh, in a way, looking at it now, it, it was terrible. And uh, we lost some friends in 67. And, uh, but it was a short war and a very swift victory. And uh, I took part in two sections, in the 
West Bank and in the Golan Heights. And, but, but, but it was short and, uh, and I went back to the kibbutz in 67. I, I already had a young daughter at that time. My first daughter, Nama, was born in February of 67. So she was a baby during the war. She was a baby. So you returned to the, uh, to the kibbutz and you're a farmer. And um, how did that impact? You know, obviously, ultimately, uh, a great company was founded. Um, but tell me a little bit about farming life then in, in the desert. You know, I wanted to drive the tractor and to operate the machinery and so on. This is what I really loved. But most of the day, I was moving very heavy aluminum irrigation pipes from one post to another. This was the irrigation at the time. In the desert, you had to irrigate. You had to irrigate a lot. And we had those three-inch aluminum pipes, 12 meter long, with a sprinkler in the center. And after each irrigation, uh, we used to move it to the next place and, and reopen the water. And this was my job. I did it most of the day. And so these are, these are those big irrigation pipes? It's not the big ones. It's not the center pivot okay. that you see. But on the, the wheels that, on the that wheels. Well, no. no. Okay, this it is more like, basic. Like, you know, a 12 meter long uh, aluminum pipe. Uh, it is on the surface. You connect it to a valve. It's... I'm trying to remember how long it was, but a few hundred meters, and you had to move it. Manually. 12, manually to disconnect it, carry it, move it 12 meters, and connect it again. And I wish I could have told you the next story. So there I was in the field, in the mud, because you're always taking it after an irrigation cycle, so you are stepping in the mud with this heavy aluminum pipe and schlepping it from one stand to another. And, and you keep thinking all the time, I have to find something better. And this is how I invented drip irrigation. This is the story that I wish I could tell. <laughs> but unfortunately, it wasn't me. No, I didn't invent drip irrigation. In 1964, we were looking to diversify. We realized that farming is great and we will continue farming, but people will get older and we need to find something else. The we is the kibbutz. The kibbutz. Got it. So we assigned a member of the kibbutz, the guy who at that time was the treasurer of the kibbutz and he traveled like twice a week to Tel Aviv uh, to the Jewish agency, to the government, to the banks, and so on, the kibbutz movement. So we told him, try to find an industry. Try to find a business for us. And as a kibbutz, we set some guidelines. We said it will be excellent if it is connected to agriculture, because we are farming community, we are farmers. Find something which doesn't require a big investment because we didn't have the funds. 
try something which doesn't require a lot of labor because one of our very strict uh, restrictions was that we are not going to employ people outside of the kibbutz. We cannot exploit the labor of people who are not members of the community. We can enjoy only what members of the community produce. So Uri, this was the guy's name, met Simcha Blas. Simcha Blas invented drip irrigation. And Simcha Blas, again, his story, and I heard it from him, in the 1930s, he visited uh, a friend in Hedera, and he saw a long fence of trees, and one of them, he noticed, was exceptionally bigger than the others, and I'm, I'm quoting him. So he went to check to see the reason. And he saw that a metal pipe that was carrying water to the house had a crack in it, and it was leaking. It was dripping slowly, drop by drop, next to that tree. And, and this, he, he, he saw that on the surface there was only a very small stain of moisture. But when he started digging, he saw that you get, today we call it a bulb shape of the moisture, and all the roots of that specific tree were concentrated in that wetted area. And this gave him the idea for drip irrigation. What year is that? It was, I think, 30, 1936 or something like okay. this. But he had to wait until plastic was introduced and became very popular. And that's when he started to do experiments. And he thought that it's an excellent idea. And you have to know Simcha Blas was a known figure in the Israeli water arena. He was the chief uh, engineer of Mekorot, our national water company. He was the mastermind of the uh, national water carrier in the 50s, leading water from the Sea of Galilee to the south. He was a water man. And when we met him, he was quite frustrated because no one believed him. He spoke to other kibbutzim, he spoke to people from the academia, he spoke to people in the Ministry of Agriculture. They said, no way that this will work. And we said, and again, I remember, I was not involved in the negotiations, but I was part of the General Assembly. We had a General Assembly meeting when Uri presented the idea of drip irrigation, of getting into partnership with Simcha Blas. And he said, guys, we are not taking a big risk. We need to buy one car. If drip irrigation doesn't work, we will sell it. We need to buy one plastic injection machine. If drip irrigation doesn't work, we can sell it. We don't need to build a place because in the corner of the carpentry, we had like a, a wood workshop at the kibbutz. We had some space. We'll put the machine there. We'll start Nerafim. So I enthusiastically, I voted for Netafim. So officially, you can call me a co-founder. 
but I never considered myself a co-founder. And, and more than that, I, at that time I said, no, I'm not going to join at Ophim. I came to the Negev, to the desert, to be a farmer. And it took me a few years until I realized that this is my place, and I joined Netafim. What is the problem that drip irrigation is trying to solve? <clears throat> right now, you could irrigate a field, as we, you know, many people see with these big round sprinklers on top, and it seems to work. But, but what does drip irrigation do which changes the game? You know, from day one, we realized that drip irrigation gives an answer to two very pressing challenges. Food security and water scarcity. And this was, I remember, I was already at Natafim, but in 1976, we did a kind of a promotional I wouldn't say video, because it wasn't video, a promotional film on the challenges of the world, the growing population, the Malthus theory, not enough resources, not enough food. And drip irrigation gives an answer to that. So from day one, I remember, you know, we did the first installation on our orchard. And, and year one, we almost doubled the yield. The farm manager came to us and said, guys, we are going to keep it a secret. We will not tell anyone about drip irrigation. We will have the best yields in the market. So if you are looking at today's challenges, you are talking about the growing population, you are talking about food security, you are talking about climate change, you are talking about uh, uh, water scarcity, uh, you are talking about many social impacts of all those challenges. Because when food prices are soaring, where there isn't enough food, there's a political or a social unrest. And drip irrigation meets the intersection of all those challenges. And we see it. It took us years to convince decision makers that this is The, sol the solution. But you see it today, you see it, in, obviously you see it in Israel, but you see, in Israel 75% of the irrigation is drip irrigation. If you go to the Arava Desert, which is one of the richest agricultural areas in Israel, it's 90% drip irrigation. The rest is sprinklers or micro-sprinklers, and there's no flood. Globally, most of the irrigation is flood irrigation. 70% of global irrigation is flood irrigation, even today. So what is the underlying difference between the, drip versus flood versus sprinkler? Perhaps one way to look at it is we call it nutrigation. It's not irrigation. Nutrigation means that the water and the nutrients are delivered slowly, directly to the roots, directly to the plant, at the right time, at the right place, and at the right dosage. And nutrients are always, fertilizers and so on, are always part of the, this delivery system. 
That's number one. Number two, you are irrigating the plant, you are not irrigating the soil. You are irrigating just the plant which needs the irrigation or the nutrients. And the results are less resources, higher yields, and no damage to the environment. And, and people are concerned, you know, in, in California, there's a problem with dairy farms and pollution because of the nitrates. We have a beautiful uh, uh, test in a dairy farm in California where we take the liquid manure of the cows, we dilute it with water, and we use it to irrigate the corn which is being fed to the cows. So we are turning a vicious circle to a virtuous circle. And, and which brings me to another very important thing, which is partnerships. We are not doing it alone. We are doing it, obviously, our number one partner is the farmer himself, but we are doing it with a nice NGO, a conservation NGO, or sustainable conservation, it's called in California. And we do it with some people from the academia, and partnerships are great. You voted to establish a company called Netafim. And, um, and then what happened? We voted to establish a company called Netafim. And again, one of the things that they said when they spoke to us in the General Assembly, they said, you know, we, are, we have this rule of self-labor, only kibbutz members. So we need eight people to begin with. And maximum, we will need 14. So today we are more than 5,000 employees. But we decided to start Netafim at that General Assembly. And you know, it's, I, I don't remember exactly who said what, but recently, last year, I went to the archives and I read the, the minutes of that uh, uh, meeting. And you see kibbutz members at all ages, they said, you know, it's a solution to the main challenge of Israel, which is water, so let's go for it. It's a national task. Let's go for it. And, and it really, it makes me very proud. The fact, and by the way, being a kibbutz and being motivated by ideology in a way directed us to establish, establishing Netafim. Not money, not desire to become rich, but an idealistic... No, not money not desire, nothing capitalistic about it. I, this is what we turned uh, to be. I mean, uh, just recently uh, there, there was a change in ownership and uh, our previous uh, partner sold his share to a very large Mexican company, Mexichem. They own now 80% and we, the kibbutz, own 20%. And so we had to decide what to do with the money. But ideology was embedded to the discussion. Each member got something. And, and again, there were arguments. I mean, being a kibbutz, how exactly how do, do you, you split do, it? How do you split it among the members? Does each member gets exactly the same? 
someone who just joined the kibbutz a year ago or someone that has been with us 55 years and, and worked for Nerafim for 55 years. And, and we found some kind of an equation to satisfy everyone. And at the same time, again, I'm not ashamed to say, so we were discussing this and we were discussing rewriting the vision of the kibbutz. We are still busy with our ide ideology. And it, it, it penetrates to Netafim. I think Netafim, we are a big corporate now. A for-profit company. We are a for-profit and I always, I, I have, I have a problem. I talk too much like an NGO, but my CEO always kicks me from the side and says, Nati, please remember we are a for-profit organization. We are a for-profit organization, but we are very fortunate. We are doing well by doing good. We are doing good things for the planet, for the people, and making profit as a result of it. Let's talk about that. So. Who is your first customer? Our first large, there were several at the same time. There were a few that, as a matter of fact, Simcha Blas started to do experiments with them. Moshavnikim, small private farmers in the Arava Desert, in Moshav Ein Yahav. They were perhaps the first. There was something in Kibbutz Engedi. This wasn't very successful. As a matter of fact, Simcha Blas went to them and offered them this partnership, and they refused. And then we did a very, for that time, a large-scale project uh, irrigating uh, uh, table grapes in Moshav Bnei Atarot, which is east of uh, Ben-Gurion Airport. And... Uh, I remember my first customers because I, when, when we established our first subsidiary outside of the United States, we went, two guys from Netafim, to, to the States. I went to Los Angeles, and my colleague Iche, Isaac, went to New York because we didn't know how exactly and who will be our customer. What year is that? 81. 1981, summer of 1981, we established our first subsidiary outside of Israel. And until that point, all uh, of your customers were Israeli customers? No, until that point, we worked with people. The first installation in California was perhaps in 67 or 68, Avocado Grove in San Diego County. And this was an extension service person from California who was on sabbatical in Israel, sold drip irrigation and decided to install it in San Diego County. So they were our first customer in the United States. Uh, we had also customers in Australia, in Italy, in Greece, in, in South Africa that time, but we worked through local representatives. And in 81, we decided that in order really to grow faster, we have, as you say, to jump into the water and to take uh, control of the work. And today, fast forward, we have 29 fully owned subsidiaries all over the world. 
We have 17 manufacturing plants. We have three plants in Israel, but then we have a manufacturing plant in California, in Mexico, Chile, Peru, Brazil, South Africa, Spain, Holland, Turkey, India, Australia, China. It's impressive that you remembered all those. I remember, <laughs> yes, because, you know, I, I see the Probably map. I've been there, right. I see the map. I haven't been to all of them. I've been to most of them. How has the technology evolved from 1964, when you first started the company, to today? I mean, it, it probably doesn't even look the same. It may look the same. It's not the same uh, product. In, in the early 70s, we met a young Israeli engineer, Rafi Mehudar, who changed the product completely and invented and developed the new generation of drippers. So, uh, you know, it's like the automobile. If you look at the car today, I mean, basically it looks like the Ford Model T. I mean, it has four wheels, a steering wheel and four doors and it goes. And basically even the engine has not changed uh, uh, revolutionary. But you cannot compare today's vehicle to, to the Ford Model T. The same with the dripper lines. Our drippers today are very accurate. You can work with wastewater. Most of the irrigation water that we use in Israel is treated wastewater. Uh, it, can, uh, it will deliver exactly the same amount of water and nutrients, whether you go down the valley, up the hill, near the water source, far away from the water source. Uh, it has a self-cleaning mechanism. It has a mechanism that prevents roots from entering the dripper and so on. Uh, we work with chemicals and so on. So uh, it's, it's the same, but it is far away from being the same. And we are constantly investing in research on de uh, and development. On how the products. How many acres of agriculture do you now serve? Have your, your product? You know, we, we manufacture billions and billions and billions of drippers. Uh, someone calculated once that uh, I don't know how many times you can take our dripper lines and go to the moon and back and still have enough to tie a bow tie. <laughs> and and uh, or, or how many, you know, times you can wrap it around the, the globe. So we are doing a lot, but at the same time, we are doing very little. And I'll tell you why. As I said, in Israel, 75% of the irrigation is drip irrigation. Globally, only 6% is drip irrigation. So, and, and when you are going to the sub-Saharan Africa, there's a lot of work to be done. So we are changing it. California is second to Israel in the adoption of drip irrigation. I would say that today between 40 and 50% of the irrigation in California is drip. India is moving forward. We have beautiful project. We call it community irrigation. 22 villages, 6,700 farmers. Each one two, three, four acres of a drip irrigation system, but the government 
with support of the World Bank. And Netafim, we supply the farmers with an irrigation system where they can grow many crops. And, but it's not only, when we say we supply the drip irrigation technology, it's not only the hardware, it's also the software. So in our agreement, it's, uh, this community irrigation project is in the state of Karnataka. And in our agreement with the government, we are committed to be in the field, our agronomists and technicians, for five years after commissioning the system. And many times we insist on it. When you say in the field, that means you live there? We, yeah, we have Full-time employees. Live there or visiting there or living in the region and visiting the farms. Together with the growers, we formed, I don't remember again, 22 or 23, what they call water user associations. So they get together to get the know-how and the training of how to maintain the system, how to clean the, the filters, how often to irrigate, what kind of uh, fertilizers to use and so on. But then we say, since we are already there, why don't we bring also a social worker and talk to the women about their things? I, I, our CEO told me that he was shocked. I mean, he went to that specific project and a lady came to him, an Indian lady, and hugged him and said, you know, thanks to you, I make more money and I can send my kids to, the, to school now, to the university. And, and, you know, we spoke about environment, about food, about poverty and so on. But gender issues, I mean, more than 50% of the labor force in agriculture in the developing countries are women. And we entrust them with this innovation coming from startup nation Israel. And we talk to them. And, and we say, dear lady, you grow here chili pepper. And your mother grew chili pepper. And your grandmother grew chili pepper. So you must know something about how to grow chili pepper in Karnataka, India. And we come from Israel and we know something about drip irrigation. So let's create this dialogue. And, and in India, by the way, it's, we, we do it via proxy because we have Netafim India is one of our greatest subsidiaries. And they have, I think, 80 agronomists, all of them local. So, and, and I, they have more than 1,000 employees in Netafim India. Again, all of them local. But somehow they have the, this unique kibbutz Israeli spirit in them, which is so nice to see. This concludes part one of my interview with Nati Barak of Netafim. Join us for part two as we discover how they grew the company into the global drip irrigation leader that it is today and the impact it had both on the kibbutz and on the state of Israel. You've been listening to Startup Stories from the Startup Nation. I'm the host, Yigal Marcus. The associate producers are Moshe Raps and Avi Maklis, and the senior research analyst is Lior Levin. If you have a startup that you think we should feature on air, please email me at yigal.marcus at bernstein.com or at startupstoriesisrael 
at gmail.com. No Good Startup in Israel is too big or too small. A big, very special thank you to my employer, Alliance Bernstein Investment Management and Research, who has been incredibly supportive of this initiative. And please, share these podcasts with your friends, like us on Facebook, and please, please, please rate us on iTunes. Until next time, thank you for listening.